Hello and welcome. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Today, we will be reading the first installment of Hidden History of Kentucky Political Scandals by Robert Schrage and John Schaff. A summary of what we will be reading is as follows. The Shady Side of Bluegrass Politics At various points in history, Kentucky's politics and government have been rocked by scandal, and each episode defined the era in which it happened. In 1826, Governor Deshay pardoned his own son for murder. In a horrific crime, Governor Goebel was assassinated in 1900. James Wilkinson was branded a traitor against Kentucky and the nation. Honest Dick Tate ran away with massive amounts of money from the state treasury. In modern times, Operation Boptrot resulted in perhaps the biggest scandal in the state. Authors Robert Schrage and John Schaff offer a fascinating account of Kentucky's history and its many unique and scandalous characters. Hidden History of Kentucky Political Scandals was published by the History Press of Charleston, South Carolina, and has a copyright year from 2020 by Robert Schrage and John Schaff. So please join me now for the first installment of Hidden History of Kentucky Political Scandals by Robert Schrage and John Schaff. Introduction. Since Kentucky became a state in 1792, generations of its citizens have worked honorably in public service at the state and local government levels. Those public servants and their work are often unappreciated when they should be honored and valued. However, as long as humans are in charge of government, business, or any other endeavor, there will be scandals when ethics are set aside in the quest for more wealth, more power, or both. At various points in the state's history, Kentucky's politics and government have been rocked by scandal, and each scandal helped define the era in which it happened. Those scandals produced colorful characters, stories, and in several cases, legal reforms to rebuild public trust and prevent future scandals. Many aspects of Kentucky's experiences are marked by some element of trickery or corruption. Indeed, the state's capital city of Frankfurt was founded by General James Wilkinson, whom historian Frederick Jackson Turner called the most consummate artist in treason that the nation ever possessed. So there were episodes of corruption and double-dealing before and after statehood, during the post-Civil War years, and all the way to the present day, with scandals in politics and governing. Some of the most fascinating stories include State Treasurer Honest Dick Tate disappearing forever with bags full of public money, the assassination of Governor William Goebel, Kentucky's political bosses, and more recently, the Boptrot scandal. Kentucky's motto is, United We Stand, Divided We Fall. A better motto might be what Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist John Ed Pierce titled his 1987 book, Divide and Dissent. Why does Kentucky have such a history of public scandal? Pierce says, the ferocity with which Kentuckians play politics and the corruption that so often marks the average courthouse, the vote-buying, the patronage, the selling of public services for political loyalty, have their roots in poverty. 
In addition to its history of economic woes, Kentucky's government power is widely dispersed, with billions of dollars administered by thousands of public officials, all of it flowing to public agencies and private businesses and individuals. Kentucky has a lot of people working in state and local public service, over 31,000 employees and elected officials in state government, and many thousands more who are elected or employed to run the state's 120 counties, the independent entities that Professor Robert Ireland called Little Kingdoms. Additionally, there are 419 cities, 172 school districts, and almost 1,300 special districts that govern everything from airports to water service to tourism, and most of which have the power to collect taxes and fees. With that many people, organizations, and sometimes blurry lines of authority, it is amazing there are not more stories of wrongdoing and illegal activity in Kentucky's history. That's a testament to the hundreds of thousands of citizens who've honorably served the Commonwealth and its local governments as public employees and elected officials. The purpose of this book is to look at the unusual and often outrageous episodes, those moments when the darker side of human nature, greed, dishonesty, thirst for power and fraud, infected Kentucky's public life. It would be unfair and inaccurate to conclude that scandals define Kentucky or that Kentucky's scandals are worse or more prevalent than those in other states. Following Bob Trot and other late 20th century state and local scandals, Kentucky adopted significant reforms that put the state at the leading edge of anti-corruption laws. Kentucky has always been a state divided, despite its famous motto. Differences of poverty, geography, tradition, economics, and customs all play a role in how the state and its many localities are governed. Those differences also influence the priorities, leadership, and most important, the behavior of the various public officials. There will always be failures leading to dishonesty and outright corruption in government, business, religion, or any institution. The challenge for all of us is to ensure that the institutions are positioned to prevent corruption, or if it does arise, to address it effectively to maintain or regain the trust of the taxpayers, customers, parishioners, and general public. The authors of this book hope a review of past failings and a discussion of effective reforms will help lead to an awareness of how good we can be. As Shakespeare wrote in All's Well That Ends Well, no legacy is so rich as honesty. Perhaps a new tradition has started. Chapter 1, The Early Years, Statehood and the Start of a Kentucky Tradition. People often think of political scandal as a modern-day occurrence, but nothing could be further from the truth. The prevalence of scandals began in earnest in the mid to late 1800s across the country and certainly in Kentucky. In the early days of the Commonwealth, government didn't have a lot of money, so theft of public funds was not a significant source of scandal. It was not until state government had revenue to steal that financial scandals took off. Nonetheless, the early years before and after statehood were divisive and, in some ways, scandalous. To fully understand the hidden history of Kentucky political scandals, it is helpful to review those early years 
and the various occurrences leading to the establishment of traditions that have lasted for more than two centuries. Statehood. Kentucky was born out of the Commonwealth of Virginia, a large mass of land stretching east to west approximately 800 miles in the late 1700s. As Patricia Watlington observes in her book, The Partisan Spirit, Virginia suffered from a hump on her back, the Allegheny Mountains, that lay in ridges from north to south, forming a series of barriers between Virginia and Kentucky proper. The mountains were tall, 250 miles across, and populated with Native Americans. Beyond these mountains was the future, where the new world, including Kentucky, would grow. It took a rugged spirit to settle these beautiful lands, and from those pioneers grew the new commonwealth called Kentucky. However, settlement was difficult and fraught with controversy. The road to becoming a state would be divisive, and it can be argued that the first scandal happened even before statehood. So what would create that first scandal? In a few words, land laws and land grants. The first controversy involved whether Virginia even owned Kentucky. The first land companies argued that the king never granted Kentucky to Virginia. However, it was included in the 1609 charter. The companies claimed that the land was granted to the entire nation and was under the jurisdiction of the Continental Congress. Of course, there was money involved. According to the partisan spirit, most of the land companies were operated out of Philadelphia and could profit from the Virginia claim. But a congressional claim would mean they might cash in on their purchases of land from Indians. They evidently hoped to receive congressional land grants and then sell the land in small parcels at high prices. The Virginia land laws of 1779 resolved the issue by giving land to settlers under their claims. Virginia then encouraged individuals, especially military veterans, to take up claims. First, a warrant was necessary, but that was of no use if it did not include an attachment of specific land. Thus, settlers went off to Kentucky to find prime land. From 1777 to 1779, settlers came to Kentucky in large numbers, and many were not of upstanding character. One group was land surveyors, hoping to make good money after braving the harsh trip from Virginia, Pennsylvania, or North Carolina. It stands to reason that Kentucky's earliest scandal involved land surveyors. Patricia Watlington called Thomas Hamilton the oldest and best established of the surveyors. He was 52 when he became surveyor of Fayette County in 1781, 11 years before statehood. He was a tall, slender man who had previously served in the Virginia legislature. He designated his nephew, Humphrey Marshall, as his deputy surveyor and began a political scandal. Humphrey was enthusiastic and wanted to tap into the riches of land speculation. He seemed capable of any deceit that would increase his wealth. As a public surveyor with a streak of dishonesty, Marshall was entangled in several schemes. One involved charging a double fee. When people could not pay it after 12 months, they lost their plats. As the first to know, Marshall would swoop in and put the plats in his name. 
Marshall was involved in other complicated schemes to grab land. Surveyors often took advantage of poor individuals who knew no better, and almost all surveyors obtained great quantities of land. Marshall acquired 97,316 acres, and John May, another surveyor, amassed 831,294 acres of Kentucky. Virginia established Kentucky counties. Perhaps Marshall was the first of many corrupt county officials in Kentucky history. The development of Kentucky politics can be seen in many ways through its constitution. Kentucky statehood was all but assured by the Virginia Compact of 1789, but it took three more years and ten conventions between 1784 and 1792 to achieve independence. According to Mary K. Bonsteel Tackow in the Kentucky Encyclopedia, the principal obstacles to separation involved Virginia land grants and the shared responsibilities for Virginia's debt from the Revolutionary War. The terms of the compact were revised to the satisfaction of Kentucky, and it was admitted as the 15th state in 1792. Kentucky's first constitutional convention was held in 1792. Modeled on Virginia's charter, that first constitution called for a lower house of legislators to serve one-year terms and appoint the state senate and governor for four-year terms. It also established a court of appeals, the state's highest court. This constitution was not submitted to the voters but established a process for a new convention in a few years. Controversies in the various branches of government resulted in a new convention in 1799. Two major controversies at the time included a decision by the Kentucky Court of Appeals in 1794 setting off Kentucky's first major political fight. The decision held that the Virginia Land Commission exceeded its authority when it decided the rights of numerous land disputes in Kentucky during the years of 1779 and 1780. This undermined the land titles of thousands of Kentuckians and resulted in the legislature attempting to remove two justices who had voted in favor of the decision. The attempt failed, but the legislature later took the jurisdiction of the Court of Appeals over land cases. The second controversy involved the disputed governor's race of 1796. James Garrett was a candidate, along with Ben Logan and Thomas Todd. Logan was the favorite because he was a military hero. Todd had served as secretary of all ten statehood conventions. The Kentucky Electoral College did not give any of four candidates for governor a majority vote, and instead of giving the candidate with the most votes, Logan, the office, conducted a second ballot between the top two highest vote-getters. The second-place candidate was Garrod. On the second ballot, Garrod was victorious and declared the next governor. Logan protested, but eventually gave up the effort. Garrod succeeded Isaac Shelby, the first governor of Kentucky. While none of this was illegal, it was a huge political controversy, and one of the first episodes in a long history of election-related strife and division in Kentucky. Garrett would go on to succeed himself and be the last governor to do so until a constitutional amendment allowed succession in 1992. Paul Patton was re-elected in 1999 and was the first governor since Garrett 
to win consecutive terms. The start of a Kentucky tradition. A few decades after statehood, Kentucky experienced what Professor Frank F. Mathias declared the turbulent years of Kentucky politics, 1820 to 1850. This period certainly built upon the first years of the Commonwealth's divisiveness to create an era when political parties and sectionalism started. These issues still divide the state, as do economics, poverty, and tradition. The 1799 Constitutional Convention made some changes to Kentucky's first constitution. The governor was able to keep his important patronage power with the authority to appoint the judiciary, but slavery remained protected as it had been in 1792. One of the most important differences of opinion concerned the requirement that only property owners were entitled to vote. This argument had gone on since the beginning of statehood. As Matthias says, those with no property wanted no property qualification for voting and wanted a bill of rights and suffrage for free white males. He points out that there was much suspicion between landowners and those without land. Restrictions on suffrage of free white males were not part of the 1799 Constitution, so property owners continued to want some checks on democracy, including indirect election of the governor and state senators and control of the judiciary. However, this second constitutional convention angered property owners by changing the anti-democracy 1792 Constitution to provide for direct election of the governor and state senators abolishing the Electoral College, and prohibiting the governor from succeeding himself. More than anything else, this division led to the formation of political parties. While the party movement was gaining traction across the nation, Kentucky was divided along property and then party lines. Kentucky would become known for citizens showing often blind loyalty to political parties and the leaders who ran them. This tradition started in the early 1800s and lasted until late in the 20th century. As the parties matured, however, issues did become more important, and voters took sides between the likes of Henry Clay, a Whig, or Andrew Jackson, a Democrat. National politics had significant influence on Kentucky. The governors during this time were heavily involved in patronage, and loyalty to party was vital for appointments. The governor was usually the face of the party, and it was important to his future success, including national aspirations, to have loyal appointments throughout the state. Extreme political patronage like this would be an issue in state and federal politics until the reform movement 40 to 60 years down the road. Kentucky did not recognize the legal existence of political parties until 1842, However, they in fact had existed since the 1820s, evolving over the years following the last Constitutional Convention. Just like today, one of the early problems for legislators in Kentucky was setting up voting areas and other aspects of election administration. With the advent of parties, elected officials often considered the impact of changes in legislation on their party. Any advantages the laws gave their opponents were troublesome. Matthias is correct when he says that the evolution of election administration was slow and tortuous. 
As a result, calls for honest elections administered in a nonpartisan manner were non-existent. It would take almost a century to clean up the electoral mess, and dissent and fraud now had a system in place to flourish. Thomas N. Lindsay, a representative and a delegate to the 1849 Constitutional Convention, said in a letter to Orlando Brown, Kentucky elections are annual scenes that last for three days. Elections originally were held in the county seat, but dispersed as populations scattered, leading to the creation of many more polling places. Matthias said that voice voting was held and that one's party affiliation and political leanings were known to all. Election day drinking and fighting were commonplace, and lengthy elections offered the opportunities and time for party workers to organize themselves toward the perpetration of frauds. For example, in the 1836 presidential election, Gallatin County had 918 voters registered, but a total of 1,008 voted, resulting in 109.8% turnout. In 1832, at least five counties exceeded 100% of their possible vote. Oldham County went so far as to have 163.1% of its possible votes. For the most part, the county sheriff was responsible for state and local elections. If voter fraud existed, the sheriff usually knew about it, and sometimes was in the middle of it. In 1833, a major case of election fraud happened in a congressional district covering several rural counties. In the election, Thomas P. Moore and Robert P. Letcher contested their race, which was held in the 5th Congressional District. The controversy happened when five county sheriffs met to compare votes. Each was a strong partisan, loyal to their candidate and party. Moore was a Democrat and Letcher a Whig. Four of the county's totals were in doubt. The fifth county went for Letcher, but the sheriff walked out, and the remaining counties certified the election for Moore. However, the U.S. House refused to seat either candidate and ordered a new election which Letcher won by 258 votes. This was a good example of the need for a nonpartisan election administration. In the first half of the 19th century, Kentucky's political parties were defined by economic and cultural events. In their second edition of A New History of Kentucky, Clotter and Friends say that economic, religious, personal, and societal events affected every Kentuckian but there was little agreement on how to improve society. One side felt, if left alone, in time people would do what was right. Others believed that people could be trusted only when their character had been transformed, whether by conversion, reform movements, or even government. This was the fundamental difference between the Whigs and the Democrats in Kentucky. Such deeply held personal but opposite beliefs influenced the type of behavior fundamental to fraud. With all this said, Kentucky's geography may have affected its politics more than any other factor. Some, including Matthias, believe the natural geographic division was ignored when Kentucky was laid out and its borders established. He says, sectionalism thrives best when arbitrary borders frustrate nature's design, and Kentucky's subsequent history would seem to approve this statement. 
James Wilkinson. James Wilkinson is one of the most controversial figures in the early years of Kentucky and the nation. Wilkinson was born in Maryland in 1757. His record is both amazing and controversial. He served in the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War, first in Thompson's Pennsylvania Battalion from 1775 to 1776. He was commissioned a captain in 1775 and served as an aide to Nathaniel Green during the Siege of Boston. Following the British withdrawal from Boston, Wilkinson went to New York, left Green's staff, and was given command of an infantry company. According to his Wikipedia entry, he was sent to Canada as part of reinforcements for Benedict Arnold's army besieging Quebec. He arrived just in time to witness the arrival of 8,000 British reinforcements under General John Burgoyne. This led to the collapse of the American forces and caused their retreat. Wilkinson became an aide to Arnold and soon thereafter to General Horatio Gates. Gates gave Wilkinson the honor of going before Congress to deliver news of victory at Saratoga. According to Steve Preston, writing in NKY Tribune, not only did Wilkinson keep Congress waiting while attending to personal matters, when he finally did appear, he inflated his own role in the victory. As a result, he was given the brevet rank of Brigadier General, and he was just 20 years old. His long history of deceit had begun. He was also appointed to the U.S. Board of War and Ordnance. Again, according to his Wikipedia entry, the promotion over more senior colonels caused uproar among Continental officers, especially because Wilkinson's gossiping seemed to indicate that he was a participant in the Conway Cabal conspiracy to replace George Washington with Horatio Gates as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. As a result, he was forced to resign in March 1778. Following some service in the Pennsylvania militia and in that state's assembly, he moved to Kentucky in 1784, eight years before statehood. Based on his Revolutionary War record, it may appear that Wilkinson was a hero and a valiant public servant, but the problem is that Wilkinson was a traitor. His actions while in Kentucky created the state's first major scandal with national implications. There were two strong sides on the issue of Kentucky's proposed secession from Virginia, remain a part of Virginia or become a separate state. However, there was a third, more secretive proposal led by Wilkinson, and that was for Kentucky to secede from the Union and become part of the Spanish Empire. In 1787, Wilkinson traveled from Kentucky to New Orleans to meet with the governor of Louisiana, Esteban Rodriguez Miro. In an amazing feat of treachery and arrogance, Wilkinson, according to Clotter and Friend in A New History of Kentucky, convinced the Louisiana governor that he could deliver Kentucky into the Spanish orbit and, by directing immigration into the Mississippi River Valley, prevent an American invasion of Spanish territory. In return, he wanted a trade monopoly, a royal pension, and a rank and position in the Spanish military. Wilkinson would thus control the only means by which individuals could send goods from Kentucky to Louisiana. At home, 
Wilkinson would advocate for Kentucky's separation from both Virginia and the United States. Rumors continued about his dealings with the Spanish government, but no proof existed, and he was not charged. According to Preston, Wilkinson signed a document pledging his loyalty to the Spanish crown. Later, Wilkinson would receive a $7,000 pension from Miro. Kentucky joined the Union on June 1, 1792. Wilkinson had begun his second military career. He became active in leading Kentucky volunteers to fight Indians. His activities as a trader were put on hold. Wilkinson wanted to get back into the military and did so when he was appointed a lieutenant colonel. Later, President Washington was looking for a new general and, after consideration, rejected Wilkinson for Anthony Wayne. Wilkinson was made brigadier general. As Preston says, a Spanish spy now held the number two post in the United States Army. During this time, Wilkinson would pass on secrets to the Spanish, including strategy and troop movements. With the death of Wayne, Wilkinson became commander of the United States Army. He was still being paid to spy by the Spanish government. According to author Thomas Jewett in his article, James Wilkinson, America's Greatest Scoundrel, published by Archiving Early America, the citizens of Detroit protested his greed so much that Wilkinson was transferred and named commander of the Army's Southern Department. After arriving in the South, Wilkinson wheeled and dealed in land speculation and Army contracts. While in New Orleans to take possession of the Louisiana Purchase, Wilkinson purportedly received a $12,000 bribe from the Spanish. He advised the Spanish on holding off American expansion in exchange for restoration of his pension. According to Wikipedia, he tipped off the Spanish to the purpose of the expedition of Lewis and Clark and provided advice to the Marcus of Casa Calvo to aid in the negotiations over the Texas-Louisiana border. Wilkinson was one of Aaron Burr's chief cohorts in the Burr Conspiracy, the plan to create an independent country in the middle of North America, including the southwest United States and Mexico. Burr persuaded President Thomas Jefferson to appoint Wilkinson as governor of the Louisiana Territory, but Wilkinson would later send a letter to Jefferson stating that he believed this was evidence of Burr's treason. He was afraid his own involvement in the conspiracy might be revealed. For the wrong reasons, Wilkinson helped break up the conspiracy. Wilkinson would later go on to serve ineffectively in the War of 1812, and he went to Mexico following the end of his military career. According to Jewett, using the guise as an agent of the American Bible Society, he traveled to Mexico and built the government out of a Texas land grant. The Spanish called Wilkinson by the codename Agent 13, and his involvement with spying for the Spanish was suspected, but there was no proof. Many people had no idea about his spying activities. However, in 1854, Louisiana historian Charles Gaillard published Wilkinson's correspondence with Miro. Others followed with more proof of his activities. In later years, Theodore Roosevelt would say about Wilkinson, In all our history, there is no more despicable character. 
Thomas Jewett says, Wilkinson was a man who lied and cheated throughout his entire life. He was perhaps Kentucky's first major scandalous figure, and he died in Mexico in 1825. Governor Joseph Deshaies. Joseph Deshaies served as Kentucky's ninth governor from 1824 to 1828. He was born in Pennsylvania in 1768 and eventually settled in Mason County, Kentucky. He was a farmer who served in both the Indian War of 1794 and in the War of 1812. Deshaies was a member of the Kentucky House of Representatives and the State Senate, and from 1807 to 1819, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Elected governor in 1824, he served four turbulent years. It is difficult to rank more than 50 governors who presided over two centuries of statehood. However, the case can be made that Deshaies is the worst. There were several controversies during Deshaies' term, but one in particular was downright scandalous, and it involved his family. The trial for the murder of Francis Baker, held in 1825, was a high-profile case because the accused was Isaac Deshaies, the son of the governor of Kentucky. The murder took place the year Joseph was elected governor. While visiting from Mississippi, Baker was robbed and murdered. According to author Barry Craig, Baker's body was bloody, beaten, stabbed, and stripped. He was reportedly killed with a leaded horsewhip and a knife. Prior to its start in 1825, the trial moved to the governor's home county of Harrison. The judge who moved the trial, George Pegleg Shannon, was a friend of the governor. Isaac's attorneys included a friend of the governor and member of the state's highest court. The jury found Deshaies guilty of murder and robbery and decided on death as the penalty. Judge Shannon decided that the trial evidence was tainted, set aside the verdict, and ordered a new trial. The judge's decision caused widespread public anger. A new trial was held in 1826. Again, Isaac was found guilty and ordered to meet the hangman. Isaac then tried to kill himself and was soon pardoned by his father. The pardon was issued despite Isaac's guilt being clearly proven in the two trials. Nobody thought he would survive the attempted suicide, but he did, and he was a free man. According to Craig, after the trial, a lot of people got the idea that in Kentucky, if you were well-connected, you could get away with murder, literally. The decision to pardon was extremely controversial, and public criticism rained down on the governor. When his term ended, Deshaies retired to his farm near Cynthiana and died in 1842. Baker's murder and Deshaies' interference in the legal process and pardoning his son after two convictions appears to be Kentucky's first major scandal involving a family member of a top political figure. Isaac left the state and later confessed to committing another murder, this time in Texas. Congressman Kill's colleague in duel. William Graves was born in Newcastle, Kentucky in 1805. He decided early in life to pursue a legal career. He was admitted to the bar in Kentucky, was elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives, and served in 1834 before being elected to the 24th Congress and serving three terms 
from 1835 to 1841. Jonathan Silly was born in 1802 in Nottingham, New Hampshire. Interestingly, Silly graduated from Bowdoin College in Maine with Nathaniel Hawthorne and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He became good friends with future President Franklin Pierce, who also graduated from Bowdoin. Silly decided to stay in Maine, where he was admitted to the bar in 1828 and became a member of the Maine House of Representatives in 1831. He served as Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives in 1835 and 1836 and was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1836. It was in Congress where Graves and Silly met, eventually resulting in a deadly duel. By the end of the 25th session of Congress, partisanship was high. Graves, originally elected as an anti-Jacksonian, was elected as a Whig in later elections. Silly was a Democrat. A central figure to the eventual duel between Graves and Silly was New York newspaper editor James Watson Webb, a biased journalist who was a loyal Whig. Silly called Webb corrupt and asserted that his reporting of Congress was biased and unfair. Silly stated on the House floor what many of his party believed, that Webb changed from opposing to supporting the rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States because he had received loans from the bank, totaling $52,000. Webb was greatly insulted by the allegations and convinced Graves to act on his behalf in extending his challenge to a duel against Silly. A letter of challenge from Webb was to be delivered to Silly by Graves, but Silly refused to accept the letter, which Graves took as an insult. Thus, Graves challenged Silly, who then accepted. Dueling was illegal in the District of Columbia, so the parties agreed to meet at the Bladensburg Dueling Grounds in Maryland, just outside the district. The Dueling Grounds saw approximately 50 duels over a 60-year period, beginning in 1808. The most famous duel held at Bladensburg, according to Wikipedia, happened in June 1836, when 22-year-old Daniel Key the son of Francis Scott Key, was killed in a senseless duel with a fellow Naval Academy midshipman, John Sherburne, over a question regarding steamboat speed. The Graves-Silly duel happened on February 24, 1838. Silly had the choice of weapons and selected rifles. Graves was an excellent marksman with pistols, thus the selection of rifles by Silly. The distance was set off at 80 yards, but reportedly was actually 94 yards. The first shots missed, and the distance was shortened. Again, the shots missed. On the third attempt, Graves hit Silly in the femoral artery, fatally wounding him. He died within a few minutes. In 1839, Congress passed an act prohibiting issuing a challenge or accepting a duel in the boundaries of the District of Columbia, no matter where the duel would be fought. Congressman Graves did not seek re-election in 1840, and after serving again in the Kentucky House of Representatives, died in Louisville in 1848. He is buried at his former residence in Henry County. Silly didn't finish his one term in Congress, and is buried in Maine. Webb would go on to serve as minister to Brazil for eight years. 
He died in 1884. Conclusion The turbulent period of the early to mid-1800s established traditions related to election fraud and political scandal that lasted for generations. The period was rarely free of double-dealing and fraudulent election campaigns. The advent of political parties meant that issues were not as important as personalities and party loyalty. The lack of efficient, nonpartisan election administration perpetuated fraud. Voters and politicians rationalized that cheating was for a greater good. The remainder of this book will highlight the results that evolved from this belief. Chapter 2, The Century's Last 50 Years, 1850 to 1900. The second half of the 1800s accounted for some of the most divisive years in Kentucky history. They were marked by the unsettling times following the end of the Civil War, violence, and new political scandals. The end of the Civil War brought about political and social change to which Kentuckians struggled to adapt. Kentucky was at first a neutral state and later had strong union support during the war. Violence related to elections, newly freed slaves getting the right to vote, and general lawlessness dominated the years after the war. During this era, there were several major political scandals, including the Thomas Page affair, the James W. Honest Dick Tate absconsion, and the shooting of a former congressman and events surrounding the assassination of Governor William Goebel. The Thomas Page Affair Thomas Page was the first elected public auditor for the state of Kentucky and served from 1851 to 1859. Prior to that, Page had been appointed auditor in 1839 by Governor James Clark. The position was created by the legislature as a temporary two-year position, but it was made permanent in 1843, and Page was reappointed each two-year period until the new Constitution eliminated the position in 1850. The new Constitution made the position elective instead of appointed and made it a constitutional office. In 1851, Page ran for the office and won. He was the last appointed auditor in the state's history and the first to be elected. Page was born in New York in 1800 and came to Kentucky in 1817. He was extremely ambitious and a hard worker. It did not take him long to become successful, and he began taking advantage of investment and business opportunities among the Frankfurt elite. He became involved in civic affairs, including the Masons and in private enterprise. He started accumulating land, first in Louisville and then in Oldham County. His wealth was also established through two marriages, including his first to Sophia Woolfolk, who died in 1828. The same year, he married Jane Julian, and they eventually had 11 children. In the 1830s, his business activities and investments continued to grow, and in 1833, he had an assessed worth of $13,400, which included four slaves. By the end of the decade, he had an assessed worth of $27,095, including 10 slaves, 980 acres, and horses and cattle. In February 1839, Governor Clark appointed him auditor. In this position, he was able to establish political contacts around the state, 
including with local sheriffs and justices of the peace. He was responsible for collecting and supervising the disbursement of ordinary public revenue. He was a loyal Whig, and after serving as the appointed auditor, his party nominated him to run for the first elected auditor position in 1851. He was unopposed, so he was elected. The auditor was perhaps, second to the governor, the most powerful position in the state. By 1855, Page joined the anti-Catholic, anti-immigration, know-nothing party and won re-election. As mentioned, he served until 1859 when he lost his bid for a third term. His successor was Grant Green, who beat Page in a narrow election. Unbeknownst to anyone, maybe somebody knew and didn't disclose it, as auditor, Page embezzled $88,927 by having local officials deposit their revenue with him as opposed to in the state treasury, as required by law. During his time in office, his wealth grew tremendously. According to Glenn Tao and Dennis Fielding in their article, Politics and Corruption in Antebellum, Kentucky, the assessed value of Page's personal estate increased from $27,095 in 1839 to $40,450 in 1852. Taxable property for 1859, 1860, and 1861 was assessed at $70,000, $82,000, and $64,000, respectively. This was not his total wealth, as it excludes accounts and assets in other states. His account, according to Talon Fielding, at Farmers Bank in Kentucky, was reported as $120,000 on January 1, 1858, and $110,000 on January 1, 1860. Tao and Fielding describe his duties well. The auditor's primary source of effective political power was his authority to supervise the collection of the general revenue from every local official in the state and gathering of taxes and fees from every turnpike, road, and railroad company, bank and savings institution, insurance company, and corporation. The state treasurer could only receive funds upon written authority from the auditor and could only disperse money upon the auditor's warrant. The auditor held more effective control over the state's money than either the governor or the general assembly. Grant Green became auditor on January 2, 1860. He kept Page on as a contractor for approximately two years, working on the Daily Journal, general ledger, and individual account ledgers, even taking some of the ledgers home. Green had to work to get some of the ledgers back after Page left the auditor's office. Then, in September 1862, impropriety was found. It was also during this time that it appeared Page was having financial difficulties. Perhaps these difficulties started earlier and were the reason for the embezzlement. Page would eventually declare himself broke, but would try and pay some money back in restitution. There was no way Page was going to be able to pay the total of the embezzled money back, so Green informed Governor James Robinson. It is worth noting that the crimes of which Page was obviously guilty were not criminal under Kentucky law at the time. The code of practice in criminal cases said, all public offenses may be prosecuted by indictment except for public officials. The remedy for collection of the auditor's theft was through a $100,000 bond with surety that Page was required to post. 
In essence, the auditor and the bondholders were liable. It was a civil, not criminal, matter. Page was the first elected Kentucky official to be charged with embezzlement. The state filed lawsuits claiming much wrongdoing by Page, alleging that he didn't faithfully discharge the duties of his office. Of course, the bondholders argued many points to assert their lack of liability. Most interesting was the argument that the breaches would have been prevented had the legislature fulfilled its legal responsibility. At each regular session, the General Assembly was required by law to appoint a joint committee to examine the operation of the auditor's office and to make a report to both houses. Such a committee had never been appointed. Eventually, Page would agree to pay $13,000 in the first case and $75,000 in the second. With fees and court costs, it totaled $90,082.20. On November 12, 1867, Page's trustee paid the state $45,041.10 from his estate, so the state collected about half the embezzled amount. Page, along with his second wife, lived his remaining years in poverty in Frankfurt, where he died on April 17, 1877. He is buried in Frankfurt Cemetery. His wife, Jane, died in 1889. Grant Green died in 1898 at the age of 72 and is buried not far from Thomas Page. Union General Stephen Burbridge, the Butcher of Kentucky. Kentucky's deadliest Civil War battles were fought in 1862 and early 1863, but during the last two years of the war, there were numerous attacks on people and property throughout the state, and most were perpetrated by groups of Confederate soldiers, ex-Confederates, or Southern sympathizing marauders. Throughout the war, Kentucky's state government stayed local to the United States and did not secede from the Union. However, President Abraham Lincoln and his military commanders believed they had to develop an effective response to Confederate guerrilla attacks and suppress many of the political activities of Kentucky civilians who supported the Southern cause. In February 1864, General Ulysses Grant appointed General Stephen Burbridge to temporarily command most of Kentucky, except for the far western region. A few months later, Burbridge's command was made permanent. However, by February 1865, his policies and tactics had alienated Kentuckians, and he was replaced for the final months of the war. Burbridge was a native Kentuckian, born in Scott County in 1831. When the Civil War began, he organized the 26th Kentucky Union Infantry and served as its colonel. He fought at the Battle of Shiloh and in the Vicksburg Campaign and was a high-ranking officer under General William Tecumseh Sherman, who would later become Burbridge's trusted advisor. During the first half of 1864, Burbridge's command of Kentucky had the support of Governor Thomas Bramlett, who was a Union Democrat and a friend of Burbridge's. However, the relationship soured as Burbridge implemented the orders he was getting from Washington, D.C. On July 5, 1864, President Lincoln issued a proclamation declaring martial law in Kentucky and suspending the writ of habeas corpus, allowing the military to arrest people suspected of disloyalty and hold them indefinitely. 
Lincoln's proclamation was primarily aimed at Kentuckians who joined the forces of the insurgents, but it was also directed at Kentuckians who the president said were inciting rebel forces to renew the civil war within the state, embarrassing the United States armies operating in Virginia and Georgia, and even endangering their safety. Less than two weeks later, on July 16th, Burbridge issued his infamous Order No. 59. He no doubt thought he was taking steps necessary to implement the President's proclamation, but the order and his subsequent actions labeled him the Butcher of Kentucky. In the order, Burbridge states that all guerrillas, armed prowlers by whatever name they may be known, and rebel sympathizers are hereby admonished that in future stern retaliatory measures will be adopted and strictly enforced whenever the lives or property of peaceful citizens are jeopardized by the lawless acts of such men. Wherever an unarmed Union citizen is murdered, four guerrillas will be selected from the prisoners in the hands of the military authorities and publicly shot to death in the most convenient place near the scene of outrage. Starting on July 19th, with the execution of two prisoners in Louisville, the retaliatory killings went on for the next several months all over the state. Two shot in Russellville on July 29th, four in Eminence on August 12th, five on August 15th in Grant and Nelson counties, four in Meade County in early September, and on and on. Usually the executions were carried out on two, three, or four prisoners at a time, in Frankfort, Maysville, Pleasureville, Bloomfield, Midway, Jeffersontown, and elsewhere. Then on November 19th, 14 men were executed in Hart County, and the executions continued until the last one was carried out in Christian County on January 10, 1865. It's estimated that about 200 citizens and Confederate prisoners died in this manner. Burbridge's ordered killings were ineffective in stemming the tide of guerrilla raids that continued to spread murder and mayhem throughout Kentucky. He was also heavy-handed and ineffective in his attempts to suppress political dissent, which he saw as threatening to the Union cause. Burbridge interfered with two Kentucky elections in 1864. The first interference was in August, three days before a state election, when he ordered the name of an incumbent judge stricken from the ballot on the grounds that the judge was a Confederate sympathizer. Then, in the weeks preceding the November presidential election, Burbridge characterized large numbers of Kentuckians as disloyal to the Union, ordered their arrests, including the lieutenant governor, the state's chief justice, and the editors of the Louisville Journal and the Owensboro Monitor, and banished them from the state. On the day of the election, Burbridge deployed federal troops to polling places in a move that probably felt to many Kentucky voters like intimidation and an effort to suppress support for George McClellan, Lincoln's opponent. In spite of Burbridge's efforts, McClellan easily carried Kentucky, although Lincoln won the national election by a wide margin. McClellan's win in Kentucky was an indication of the unpopularity of Lincoln's policies, as carried out in the state by Burbridge. In the months in which he was in command of Kentucky, Burbridge used a very heavy hand to implement many wartime policies promulgated by the United States. 
it's reasonable to believe that his overly forceful approach alienated many Kentuckians from their loyalty to the federal government. After the war ended, Kentucky voters elected Confederate sympathizers and ex-soldiers to run the state government for the next three decades. Because he was so widely hated in his native state, Burbridge moved to Brooklyn, New York after the war and died there in December 1894. He is buried in Arlington National Cemetery across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. The Aftermath of the Civil War Reconstruction of the South was the major federal initiative the United States pursued following the war. It was intended to change the racist system that had existed in the states of the Confederacy, and it had a somewhat lesser impact in Kentucky than in the states of the Deep South. However, Kentucky's response to Reconstruction was similar to that of other southern states. It had conservative Democrats opposing the new set of norms and policies advocated by the federal government and radical Republicans who supported change. Clotter and Friend wrote, Kentucky went through a period not of Reconstruction, but of readjustment. Following the Civil War, Kentucky politics was deeply divided and saw vicious infighting between and inside the political parties, especially as leaders fought emancipation and civil rights for freed slaves. Citizens, party loyalists, and elected officials pushed back against changes that were inevitable following the war. This was particularly true of federal efforts at passing the three Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution. This concludes the first reading from Hidden History of Kentucky Political Scandals by Robert Schroggy and John Schaff. Your reader today has been Bill Van Arsdell. Please join us next time for the continuation of this book. Thank you for listening. And now please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.